I'm so grateful for many of you that have reached out, especially whether it was texting or calling or just coming by when, when during the last week of my mom's life. And I am so grateful to this church and not only to this church, but her home church as well that she went to on Sundays and then church up in Tatchby. They just really lavished us with prayers and with lots of support. And I really appreciate you guys for doing that. I still, that after image of her right there sitting very close to where Ryan is now. And just that privilege of knowing that she's in a lot better place. We're in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 tonight. And we, we started this passage last week. We're going to read it again because it's important in terms of the context of the book of Matthew. And now that we're in the middle of the book of Matthew, we, we come to this uh, very prophetic statement. And of course, you remember that the book of Matthew is all about prophetic power, the fulfillment of prophecy in power. It says there in Matthew chapter 16, uh, verse 13. And when, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I am? The son of man am. So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So father, today, tonight, as we approach you, we do ask you for wisdom. We know that um, all the things that we have accumulated in terms of knowledge, whether it's from the scriptures or just from the things that we know here on this earth, amount to nothing compared to what you reveal to us. The revelation of your word, the, the revelation of what you reveal to us on a daily basis. And as we, we stand close to you, as we abide in you, as we grow closer to you and have that relationship with you, that communication with you, Lord, help us to grow in our knowledge and our desire to know you better and better. Lord, it's truly a privilege to listen to those, those kids outside. Lord, I ask you bless those teachers. I ask you bless those that are serving our kids right now. Give them strength tonight. Lord, those behind-the-scene people that just do so much around this church, that, that truly is a, a, a godsend to us and so that the parents can even be in here. So bless them, bless the kids tonight as well. Lord, I ask that you speak to us with your power tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. And we were, last week we ended with this phrase, but my father who is in heaven, who is the one that revealed this truth to Peter? It's God, right? God is the one that revealed this truth to, to Peter. This is very important because, again, as you see in the context, in the very next paragraph, something is going to happen to Peter. He's going to say, you should not do this, Jesus. And, and, and with the very same mouth, proclaiming the glories of God and then trying to hinder uh, Jesus from his very purpose. And hopefully you had a chance to be able to read ahead and just see the closeness of these two uh, passages and the importance, again, of context like we've been talking about in the book of Matthew. Matthew is very deliberate in making sure 
that we see the course of events. First, Simon is saying this amazing phrase, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is saying, blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah, upon this very truth that you are saying, I'm going to build my church. In fact, in verse 18, he says exactly that same phrase. And I also say to you, are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. You've probably heard many sermons just on this one verse. You've probably heard sermons just on this one passage. It's amazing how much you can get out of it. Not only does Peter's name mean uh, a rock, but upon this rock, not only what Peter is saying, the revelation that God has revealed to Peter, the foundation stone, if you will, of uh, the church, but also the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, this is interesting because most times we think that we are on the defensive. But in this case, what is Hades doing? Who is on the defensive if you're going against the gate? It's the gates of Hades. Who's going against the gates of Hades? We are right? We're stealing the souls from the very gates of Hades by proclaiming who uh, Jesus is, who is on the offensive, not Satan, not hell. We are. We're on the offensive. We're taking back those that are lost. This is the privilege that we have, and this is the truth that Jesus is revealing uh, to Peter, this foundation stone, this very foundation of the church from which we ourselves get our very doctrine. Who is Jesus? The most essential thing you can ask yourself ever. And th this is truly a foundation stone that we must stand up for and we must know in our hearts is secure. There's so many things that the church fights over, little things, unfortunately. But this is one thing we must die upon. The truth of who Jesus is. Because if Jesus isn't deity, if Jesus isn't God, then all the things that we base our Christianity upon are based on falsehood. Because if Jesus isn't God, if Jesus isn't Emmanuel, God with us, the one that we believe in for our salvation, everything falls apart. This is the bedrock. And what Jesus is saying, this is the foundational stone, the foundational rock that I'm going to build my church upon. Isn't that beautiful? It's absolutely amazing what Jesus is saying and also saying to Peter here as well. Verse 19, and this is where we get this amazing truth from. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is all about salvation, friends. This is all about salvation. We, we do not take it to anything else. This is salvation. Because what happens when we proclaim the truth 
of who Jesus is. Souls are saved. Uh, souls are marked for heaven itself. When you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you did not put your tr trust in a person. You did not put your faith in a man per se. You put your faith in, as Jesus Christ says here very clearly, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what does Christ mean? You guys know this, right? This is the, the New Testament term for the Old Testament word, uh, Messiah. So this is not Jesus' last name. That would have been his dad, Bar-Joseph. Bar but this is the title for who he is, the Messiah, the one who was promised back in the Old Testament, who is coming to this earth as deity incarnate, fulfilling the Old Testament. Not just a good teacher, not just a rabbi, not just a man. He is God himself walking on the earth. The second person of the Trinity, whom we believe as God himself walking here on the earth. So when Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, of course, a lot of jokes go by when you get to heaven, you're going to see Peter, right? And you're not in terms of him being at the gates or anything like that. But you can see where people get that theory. He has the keys to the kingdom of heaven. This is really where it comes from. It's going to be Jesus that you're meeting, by the way. And isn't he better than Peter? Now, eventually you will get to see Peter, okay? Eventually you get to see all those loved ones that you've lost. Yes, thank God that we get to see them again. I've been thinking about that a lot. People have been saying, oh, your mom is with your dad now. No, she's with Jesus now. That's a lot better, by the way. Yes, thank God that they get to see each other again. But it's better to look forward to Jesus. Because he's the one that got you there. Not some loved one. Not some parent. And they, they probably had a big part but it's Jesus who got you. It's only by him that we are able to go to heaven. Verse 20 there, then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Wow. He, he just reveals this amazing truth to them. And then what does he tell them to do? Be quiet about it. Now, He's going to tell them later to open up their mouths and proclaim it loudly, okay? But at this point, he is telling them, you need to keep this truth to yourself for a certain part of time. And the reason why he's doing this is to prepare the way for what's going to happen in the very next chapter, okay? This preparation of the disciples as they're going to see Jesus literally being transfigured right in front of them. The deity of Jesus Christ revealed on this earth. And again, Matthew is very deliberate in how he reveals all these various points or these stories to us, okay? He's revealing the title. He's revealing the authority. He's revealing the power of who Jesus is by his healing word, his spoken word, 
and what he does in his miracles. And now as he's revealing these things to the disciples, what happens to Peter? In the very next verse, by the way. Have you ever been told something that kind of made you feel really good? That, that compliment that you got from your boss or that, that compliment that you got from the pastor or, or that thing that someone told you about and in the very next sentence or the very next minute, you fail. I'm sure all of us have been there, right? What does Proverbs say? Pride comes before a... And this is exactly what happens. And, and Matthew is very deliberate in showing how, how in sequence the closeness of these two events were. Unfortunately, most of the time, we divide these sections. We, we have subheadings and headings and different divisions in our Bible. And so most of the time, we don't really see the closeness of these events. Peter is declaring who Jesus is. And in the very next paragraph there in verse 21, he is now telling Jesus what to do. Is that what you should do to God? Should you ever tell God what to do? No. And, and this is what Peter does, by the way. And, and you can see that you're kind of the pride in his words as he speaks this, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you see the picture here as he puts his arm around Jesus? Probably those words are ringing in his head. I get the church built upon me. I'm the rock. I must have something important to say as he puts his arm around Jesus. And, and Matthew is very clear. The New King James Version is very clear on this word rebuke. A correction for, the, for God himself. Are you going to correct God? Wow. Now, it's very important to understand this, okay? Who revealed the title of who Jesus is in the previous section? Who was the one that revealed that? The Father. Okay. Now, what does it say in the very next paragraph of who is working in Peter's heart at this moment? Satan. Does Satan love to use pride? Does Satan love to take our, our self-confidence and mold it in his image? You see, what happens here is what Peter does in verse 22. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen uh, uh, to you. Now, there, there's a lot of behind-the-scene things that are going on here. What Jesus is revealing in terms of the Old Testament, the fulfillment that must take place, the Messiah had to die. But what Peter is looking at here is that I want to reign with Jesus right now in the millennial kingdom, skipping all the crucifixion, skipping the sacrifice, skipping the pain for sin and the freedom from the wrath of God. He wanted to skip that part, the payment part. In fact, look at what he says there, or what Jesus says in verse 23. 
But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of man. When was the sacrifice planned? And who were the only ones there, or the only one there? Godhead, yes, exactly. Was Peter there planning it? No. Was any of us planning it? No. This had to take place. Again, something prophetic. And by the way, even before the Old Testament, this prophecy had to be fulfilled that sin must be paid for, even before, by the way, sin existed. That's just mind-boggling, by the way. Before Adam and Eve sinned, God had already pre prepared a way for salvation. Isn't that beautiful? Just absolutely amazing. And who is trying to stop it, by the way? And again, yes, we do look at what Peter being used first to declare who Jesus is. And then in this next section, being used by Satan to declare the opposite. Because Satan does not want Jesus to die for the salvation of the world. He, he didn't want him to accomplish this truth that had been proclaimed from prophecy in the past. Look at what James says there in James chapter 3, verse 7 through 10. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. This is James, by the way. It is unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our God and Father. Okay, did Peter do that? Now, we understand that James, this James here, is considered the half-brother of Jesus. He, he, he would have been one of those people that, whether behind the scenes was a, a, um, a silent disciple or later on became a disciple and heard a lot of these stories. And can you imagine him looking back or hearing the stories of Peter and realizing that those stories where Peter spoke that amazing truth, glorifying God and who he is, and with the same mouth in the very next section, what does he do? Try to hinder the plans of God. What does it say there? And with it we curse man who have been made in the similitude or likeness of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessings and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not. So how do we stop this from happening? And by the way, Jesus is going to give us this answer in the very next section. Okay? And again, it all comes down to where is your heart? Uh, who are you next to? Who are you surrendering to? We should never follow men or allow our pride in some good thing that we have done to allow a foothold for Satan. Isn't that exactly what happened to Peter? Did Peter come and sift his heart? Did Satan come and sift Peter's heart? Yes, he did. First Peter, or excuse me, First Corinthians, chapter three, verses twenty-one to twenty-three. 
pastor referred to this on Sunday, by the way, both chapters 1 and chapters 3 of 1 Corinthians refers to this. It says, therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or, or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. Cephas, by the way, is Peter, okay? It was just his proper name, okay? Uh, Cephas being a one of the names for Peter, verse 23 there, and you are Christ, and Christ is God. All those amazing men, all, all those amazing people, and, and thank God there's people that have m much greater wisdom, or have that gift of, the, of teaching, that have that gift and that ability to expound upon the Word of God. And thank God that we can learn from them. Thank God that we can understand that they are following Christ and we have the privilege of seeing the parts of their life that we can also emulate as well as long as they are emulating Christ. Thank God for that. But should we ever base our salvation on a person? No. We should never do that. There's an amazing story a long time ago. It was Spurgeon or one of those old guys, the great men of the faith. And he runs into a guy in an alley. And he's drunk. This guy is drunk. And he runs into this guy in this alley, and this guy is complaining that he has somehow lost his salvation. And Spurgeon asks this guy, well, How did you become saved? I, I, I believed in this guy by the name of Spurgeon. I went to one of his big, huge events, and, and I got saved because of Spurgeon. And Spurgeon tells the guy, well, That's why you got it wrong. Because you're believing in the wrong person. Who, who should we believe in? Jesus Christ. Thank God for Paul. Thank God for Apollos. Thank God for Peter. Thank God for Matthew. Thank God for these men who literally were sensitive to the Scripture or sensitive to the Holy Spirit in writing uh, the Scriptures. But what they do is they show the fallacies of human beings. Because even Peter, as he's coming to this truth, realizing that Jesus is uh, the Christ, and in the very next section, trying to hinder the truth of the gospel. All of us need to understand that we need to be close to Jesus. There's two ways to defeat Satan's influence, and both of those, by the way, are what Jesus says in the previous paragraph set your minds on god who was the one that revealed the truth to peter who was the one that revealed it to his mind god did and the second one is deny ourselves look what G and, and again every single one of these is one right after the other jesus explaining these truths Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Just the way that Matthew lays these truths out. First, revealing who Jesus is as God. Second, showing that the same Peter upon whom this the, the truth of what Peter had revealed, 
the, the church would be founded upon is now coming to Jesus and saying, no, we shouldn't do it uh, this way. And then what does uh, Jesus tell Peter? You need to deny yourself right now. You need to deny yourself right now. Because when pride comes into our life, what happens to our big head? And we think we're God. We think we're in charge. We, we think we have a better plan than God. And that's exactly what Peter was doing, unfortunately, and what we can do as well. Verse 25, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Underline that word will. That, that, that's not a maybe. That's not an if. That, that, that is a very important, assuring word. Do, do you want to be sure of your salvation? Don't ever base it in something that's fickle or temporary or has a number of years to their life. Because there's only one who can securely hold our salvation. And that's the one that's everlasting, by the way. And is Jesus everlasting? Yeah. In fact, that's one of the attributes that we know that God has, the proof of that Jesus is uh, uh, God, that he is eternal. Not just from the time that he was born here on this earth, as many people say, unfortunately, but even from eternity past, he existed. And so the eternality of God in this man that is walking here on the earth. In fact, what does it say there in verse 26? For what profit is it if a man, if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Is the world finite? Yes. Even though it's been here for thousands and thousands of years, is the earth finite? How long has Jesus existed? Forever, without count. Forever and ever, eternity past, eternity future. Which would you rather base your future, your salvation on? The world or Jesus Christ? And if we just ask these questions, and in fact, what Jesus is doing here, he's very uh, methodically taking the disciples and us uh, through these logical points. Uh, I am God. I, I am the Son of God. I am walking incarnate here on uh, the earth. That there is a better plan than any of you could ever think of, and we must deny ourselves. We must rely upon him. And then the third point there, we see it there in verse 27. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angel. And then he will reward according to his work. Is Jesus coming again? And is he very close? Oh, yeah. Do, do you see the signs around we're going to see more of that as we get further on into the book of Matthew. Jesus is going to reveal these things systematically as he walks through these steps. But what Jesus is doing here is he's whetting their appetite for what's to come. 
Okay. He's exposing them to these truths a little bit at a time. Verse 28, assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. Now, when is Jesus going to come in his kingdom? This is very interesting because we're going to see a glimpse of that in the very next chapter, by the way. The, the Peter, James, and John are all going to get to see the revealing of the glory of Jesus right there in front of them. The, reveal, the glimpse, if you will, of the kingdom of heaven right there. In every single time that we see the kingdom of heaven, who does that always refer to? Jesus. We saw that when we were looking at the parables. Who does the kingdom of heaven always refer to? Jesus. In fact, that's exactly what's going to happen there in the next chapter 17. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. He had just revealed to them who he was in terms of his title. He, he had revealed to them with words, with revelation of who he is. And now what does he do in the very next chapter? He proves it to them. Can you imagine? Just absolutely amazing. Well, what is Jesus doing here? He's showing them a glimpse of his glory. Now, if you ever go to Israel, in order to get to the spot where they believe that this took place, the transfiguration event took place, you actually have to go up a hill. And you can either walk or you can take a bus, okay? And it's their switchbacks that go all the way up to this place where most people believe where the transfiguration took place. The interesting thing here, though, it isn't so much the spot, is what from that spot. You see the town of Nazareth just off to the right, just off to the north there. You, you see where he grew up at from that mountain. And then below the mountain, you see uh, the Valley of Megiddo or Armageddon right down there. And what is Jesus doing when he reveals his glory right to them? He, he shows that not only is he God walking amongst human beings, proving that this is where I grew up at as a man, as a human, but also where I'm going to conquer and show my power to the world. Isn't that amazing? I'm just, just to see that revealed is just absolutely mind-boggling. The proof of where it is in terms of the transfiguration what happens as Jesus is revealed in his glory. This is very similar, by the way, to what happened when Moses got to see the glory of God. You guys remember that, right? What happened when Moses saw the glory of God, or just the tail end, if you will, the, the afterglow of the glory of God? What did God have to do? Yeah, in the cleft of the rock, right? 
And then as that train of the very last part of the glory of God passed by, what happened to Moses' faith? Face. And I'm sure faith too, but face. What happened to his face, right? That there was this effect that overtook him, so much so that people were afraid to look at him where they asked him to put a veil over his face until eventually it went away. Now, the same thing is true here, but this is interesting because the people that are here, Moses and Elijah, are very important figures. Because who is standing there talking with Jesus? Moses and Elijah. Now, how did Elijah, okay, this is a, I, I have to phrase this correctly. How did Elijah's life end? Yeah, he got taken up into heaven, right? And a fiery chariot, right? And now what happened to Moses? If you read the book of Jude, it says that he not only did Michael and Satan fight over the bones of Moses there on the mountain that's overlooking the promised land, but it's interesting to note that did Moses get to go across the Jordan River into the promised land? Not in his human life, right? But is he in the promised land in this instance? Isn't that amazing? Yes. I love that, right? The beauty of what happens that Moses is there. And then what does Peter want? Again, this is Peter, by the way. Peter's the one that's speaking. It's not James. It's not John that's speaking in this instance. But what does Peter want to do with Moses and Elijah and Jesus? It tells us there. Verse 3, and behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. And then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. By the way, they're the only three of all the apostles, okay? This is like the inner three. This is the inner core. This is the preferred ones. This is the guys that, you know, are the ones that have the business meetings or the collaborations together. They get to do special things with Jesus. They're the ones that got to go off with him when he prayed. They're the ones that kind of had that, that in with Jesus, if you will. And what does Peter want to do away from the other disciples, away from everyone else? What does he want to do? And Peter answered and said, Oh, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. By the way, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? They weren't alive when Moses was alive or Elijah was alive. How did they know who they were? We don't know the full answer, but can you imagine what Jesus would have done when he saw them? How are you doing, Moses? How are you doing, Elijah? Knowing them personally, by the way, if if someone who was just born 30 years before, would he have known Moses and Elijah? No. This is the one for whom was the one that would talk with Moses, would talk with Elijah. It's just absolutely amazing the personal relationship that Jesus has with Moses and Elijah, and also with Peter and James and John, by the way. 
these these men that have crossed time period, that have crossed testaments, that, that, that have crossed centuries, if not millennia. And now these two men, these two figures, prophets from the Old Testament, are now standing with Jesus in the very presence of three witnesses, by the way, which is going to be important when we come to the very next chapter, by the way. Because these three witnesses, Peter, James, and John, Matthew writing this, what are they revealing about the truth of who Jesus is? Is he Emmanuel? And did they see his glory? Revealed right to them in this instance. Now, what Peter is doing here, by the way, he wants to camp out here. That's what he's doing, right? And, and we probably, we can't fault him for it. We probably would want to do exactly the same thing, right? We're going to build houses here. We're going to hang out with Moses and Elijah. It's going to be lots of fun, right? But you don't even have to go to heaven to meet him, okay? I, I get questions all the time, and most of the time I can't answer those questions, and so I just tell the guys that ask me the question, but you can ask Elijah or Moses or Whoever it is, when you get to heaven, you'll get to ask them. But the amazing thing here, Jesus is revealing is not only the personal relationship between Jesus and Moses and Elijah, but also the glory of God being revealed right to them. The glory of God being revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration. Verse 5. And if you don't think that's enough, it gets better, by the way. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased to hear him. Now, you've heard this phrase before, by the way, except for the last two words. Okay, where have you heard this phrase before? When he was baptized, right? And the heavens opened up, the dove came down, you know, rested upon Jesus as he was coming up out of the water. And you hear that voice, uh, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, right? But now he adds this two-word phrase there at the very end, hear him. What is God revealing? What is God the Father revealing about the Son when he tells the disciples to hear him? What is he saying? With the same authority that God the Father speaks, the same authority God the Son speaks. Isn't that powerful? And many times, unfortunately, what denominations do or cults do, we separate the two authorities. We should never do that. The, the, the same voice that God the Father speaks is the same voice in agreement that God the Son always speaks as well. There can never be a, a chaotic moment or a disunion in the Godhead ever. They always agree. There was no arguments at the beginning of eternity when, when God the Father said, I guess it's going to be you that's going to have to be sacrificed. No, there wasn't any arguments about it. There was, there was always agreement in what was going to happen in terms of the plan of uh, salvation. What God the Father is saying here is he has the same exact authority that I do. Hear him. 
What he says is the truth that comes from my mouth as well. What happens to those disciples? Verse 6, when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and they were greatly afraid. Wow. Is authority being proclaimed right in front of them? Is power being revealed, prophetic power being revealed right in front of them? That this is truly God, the glory of God revealed right to them, standing in their very midst. It should cause us to do the same, by the way. So many times we, we take for granted our relationship with Jesus Christ. We take for granted our salvation. We come flippantly to God so many times. And thank God, yes, we can come before him at any time knowing that he hears us. Thank God for that. But should there always be a reverence when we approach God? We're entering the very throne room of God whenever we pray. And there should be that reverential fear, understanding that this is God that I get to talk to. In fact, verse 7 brings us out. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. What is Jesus revealing here? Not only the reverence of God, but now what does he reveal by him touching them? Is God personal too? And this is the great thing about what Jesus does. And this is better than any other religion on the planet, by the way. Because not only when there's religions that are very reverential, there's religions where there's this great divide between what they worship and, and who they are. Uh, and, and thank God that we have a God that is high and lifted up. But did that same God who is high and lifted up come to the earth and walk in the same ground that we do. The same ground that those disciples. And even to die on a dirty cross for our sins too. Not only is God high and lifted up, but he's also personal as well. He touches them. He touches them. Verse 9, as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision to no one till the Son of Man is risen. From the dead again, he he gives this this, this um, warning, if you will, same thing that he did in the previous chapter. Now there's going to be a time, yes, they're going to reveal it to the world, but what is he telling them to do in this instant? Wait upon it, sit upon it, wait until you see the Son of Man rise, and then proclaim it to the world. Proclaim it to the world. Verse 10, and his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, and, and if you were here just a couple of weeks ago, we actually saw this where John the Baptist is the only person that Jesus actually makes a sermon of. He was the cousin of, of Jesus. He was the one that prepared the way for Jesus. He's the one that baptized Jesus. And so he reveals this truth again to them, as saying, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. 
what happened to John the Baptist, the one who came in the spirit of Elijah, who prepared the way for the Messiah. What happened to John the Baptist? He was beheaded. And what's going to happen to the Son of Man or Jesus? He too must suffer. And, and by the way, this is the second time in two chapters. Remember that he had revealed it to the disciples before in the previous chapter. Now he's revealing it to them to again. And now this time, Peter, by the way, doesn't say anything. What Jesus is doing is preparing their hearts for what's going to happen in the future. Okay? The preparing of the hearts of what's going to happen to Jesus when he is died. And when they look back on all the things that Jesus had said, then the Holy Spirit is going to reveal these things to them again. Okay? Us being people that forget things, the Holy Spirit reveals these things to them again. But if you actually see how Jesus is doing this, it's absolutely beautiful. In fact, in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, it says this, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Who is the author of 2 Peter? Peter, okay? It, it, it's just absolutely beautiful what Peter is doing in this passage. He's looking back as an old man now, looking back to the time when he himself got to see Jesus Christ transfigured and hear those very words. The spoken word of God to man. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Verse 18, and we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. I'm an eyewitness of these events. I'm an eyewitness. I was there and I heard it. And I base my salvation upon the one that was glorified right before me. Wow, it's just absolutely beautiful. In fact, if you read the whole, and there's only three chapters in Second Peter, it's really short. It's a beautiful book, but it's all about the future in terms of what's going to happen in terms of the second coming of Christ. You can read it. It's very applicable to today. It's really amazing. Verse 14, just continuing on there. In chapter 17, and when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Okay, now this is interesting because what is being described here, these epileptic seizures, if you will, that what was happening to this boy is this spirit, this demon that was inside this boy causing these epileptic seizures to take place was causing harm. He would specifically do it when he was next to a fire. He would specifically cause it to happen when he was next to the water, okay? The, these specific epileptic seizures weren't just random events or something that was taking place in his brain or a crossing of the wires in his brain or something like that. 
No, this is what is happening in terms of a spiritual oppression taking place in this boy's life. And the very first people, by the way, that this man brings his sons to is the disciples, okay? And re you remember earlier in the book, we had read that they'd been sent out two by two. They had been told to go and do miracles. So they had the power. They had already done miracles before. He brings the, this boy to the disciples. And what happens? Are they able to heal him? No, they can't heal him. And Jesus says something very important. Jesus answered and said to them, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. The child was cured from that very hour. Now, thank God that we have medicine. Thank God that not all epileptic seizures are called, caused by demons. I have a cousin whom I actually grew up with, and she had ep epilepsy, and she took a, had to take a pill every single day of her life. And, and thank God that that pill helped her least to calm down those epileptic seizures. This isn't what we're talking about in terms of this boy. This isn't something that could have been cured by a pill. This was a demonic oppression that was taking place in this boy's life that was causing harm to him that would specifically happen when he was next to a fire or when he was next to the water, cause harm to the boy. And what Jesus shows here, not only in terms of power, but also in terms of prophecy being fulfilled, this is absolutely important to understand. Because what does Jesus say in the very next uh, paragraph? And the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief. Tells them point blank. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have the faithful mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by. So what does that mean about Jesus? What was he doing? He had already been prepared. He had already been in prayer and fasting. He had already not only been in that process of, of fasting and praying, and he was ready, right? Of course, the power that we have through Jesus Christ as well. The interesting thing here is that the same person, the same father and the same son go to both groups. The, the same father and the same son go to the disciples and to Jesus. The, the same question, the same desire is given to both groups, the disciples and to Jesus. Did that man, that father, want his son to be cured? Do you think it broke his heart every single time he saw his son screaming in pain as he would writhe on those ashes or in that water? Do you think every single time that he, he wanted to be there so it would, wouldn't cause harm to his son? Do, do you think that was the heart of the father? And how every single night he hoped and he prayed and he wished 
for somehow that his son would be cured. And when he hears of Jesus and the disciples and he goes to the disciples and he asks them, please cure my son, please heal my son. And they weren't able to cure him. What happened to that father's heart? You think it broke? My, my, my hopes are now dashed. And then now asking Jesus and seeing the power that Jesus has. And, and not only the same question being asked of Jesus, the same faith that the same, that same man had. Did he have faith that the disciples could cure his son? Did he have faith that, that Jesus could cure his son? The interesting thing here is that, that not only is it a result of the lack of faith on the people that are doing the healing, but it's the lack of preparation on the people that were healing as well. Because the disciples, they weren't prepared for this type of a demon. But was Jesus all authority over all principalities, powers on this earth, who is able to accomplish all things. It's only Jesus. Thank God for that, by the way. What Jesus is doing here is not only showing his power and his authority, what Jesus is doing here is causing a division in the very religious heads that are watching him as well. Because what do the people that have religious authority want to do to Jesus right after he heals this little boy? What do they want to do? Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of man, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. What will people want to do to Jesus? They want to stop him, what he is doing. And, and by the way, th this is the same chapter. We, we saw the same exact thing said earlier in the same chapter. What is Jesus doing? He's showing that there's going to be this divide in the religious authorities. Are they going to want to kill him? But is he going to conquer death? Is he going to rise from the dead? Thank God for that. We'll get to the next section next week. And by the way, it's about taxes, so it's perfect for this time of year. So we'll get to that in just a little bit. I really want to encourage you, especially as you read through the book of Matthew, it, it, it's so easy to, uh, in terms of headings and, and chapters and those kind of things, divisions, if you will, it, it, it you know, when you read the book of Matthew or any book in the Bible, uh, try not to stop it at chapters. Try to go through those barriers, if you will, that are man-made, okay? Because it really reveals not only the sequence of events, but the context is so important. And especially when we get to chapter 18, when you read chapter 18, you're going to come to some sections that are always piecemealed. They're always taken out, okay? They're always taken out of context, okay? And just what we've been showing, uh, God or Jesus Christ is purp purposely revealing these things one right after another in context in the, the perfect way to reveal them, okay? And especially when we get to chapter 18, and, and you'll, you'll understand immediately when you get to chapter 18, you'll, you'll see it right away. 
But, but the context is so important when you come to this chapter. The context of what is being said by Jesus, it, it has to be read fully together in context with the verses that are around it. Don't ever take out a single verse, okay? Uh, and, and I know memorization and promises and all those kind of things, we have to do that because we're small-headed and it's hard to memorize things. But to understand that there's context around these things, okay? So especially when we get to chapter 18, hopefully you'll, you'll be able to come next week. I appreciate you guys so much. Thank you for being here. Dear Father, I, I love you, and I, I thank you so much for your power, your prophetic power that is proof not only of who you are being revealed from the Old Testament, but now as we got to see an eyewitness by Peter not only being there in the event, but also writing in Second Peter, remembering these things, being able to see the glory of God revealed, Jesus Christ incarnate, God himself standing there right before them, showing them the proof of who he is. And Lord, we, we thank you that we also must put our, our faith in you, that, that we also must put our trust in you, just, just as every single Christian must. But the privilege of knowing that as we live for you, as we deny ourselves and take up that cross daily, as we live for you, that there's a, a power and assurance of our salvation, that, that it's held by the hands of the eternal one, the one who has always been, the one that, who always will be, the great I am standing there in their presence. And that truth of salvation that truly is impossible in the hands of human beings, but in your hands, the impossible is fulfilled. A changed heart, the greatest miracle ever. And so Lord, tonight as we go our separate ways, as we, we get the privilege of even maybe even telling someone the things that we've learned tonight, showing these amazing truths to someone else. Do, do you know Jesus Christ? Let me tell you about him. Help us to be willing to share that with those around us that we meet this week in our spheres of influence, the people that we know. So bless these, my friends, my family. Use for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen.